Okay. Um, let's. So last time we left off uh, talking about the sovereignty issue, um, non-sovereign institutions, and so forth. I'd like to start today, if you could begin by talking about this concept and critique of constituent power and the reevaluation of constituent power in this post 1991, post 2011 world, some of the experiences in Latin America with constitutional initiatives and this shift from projects of national liberation to democratic autonomy. Yeah, it's a big topic. Um, you know, Tony has been very tied to the, the concept of uh, constituent power. Um, for a long time, in some ways, this was, you know, he, he wanted that we um, revisit the concept. And really, and it was really just a, a matter of, of differentiating um, really two different streams within it, one that we feel closer to. You know, constituent power, uh, it, it, it might sound technical, but it, it, it's part of especially what we grow up in the U.S. with as a tradition, you know, that the uh, the revolutionary process creates a constituent assembly, you know, on which, in which the constitution is formed. And then, you know, so, um, and then when the, the constitution is drafted, you know, that's when the, uh, constitutional power is, is formed, you know, so we have that from our own U S mythologies of Philadelphia, et cetera. Um, and, and Tony was thinking about this in a more general way. This was, you know, in something he wrote 30 years ago, um, how in all of the modern revolutionary processes, there's this uh, constituent period that then becomes closed down um, in a in a in a constituted order, and so he was he was you know trying to think through that that process and affirming the notion of constituent power. All what we're in some ways working through here, and and that and that's something that's then taken up even explicitly, like by Hugo Chavez uh, who had read Tony's book about constituent power when he was in prison before, um, you know, before he ran for office and, um, and thought of that as a kind of, um, thought of that as a kind of model. You know, what we, what we really wanted to emphasize here was just that the notion of a constituent process is something that needs always to be multiple and not, um, not closed down in any unitary way. So, I mean, that maybe that doesn't even sound, I think that it's one way of evaluating maybe many of the processes, you know, we had been in assembly and I think still are uh, thinking through a number of the, one often calls them left or progressive governments in Latin America, you know, roughly between 2000 and 2010 um, and evaluating them. And that, and this is, provides, you know, maybe one criterion for it. The, openness of the um, of the revolutionary or progressive process and then also the ways in which they are aren't closed down yeah I don't know I mean I'm I'm not sure I'm not sure as we're as as, I, as I'm trying to um, explain it here if it today if that today has the same um, pressure that it did during the during the period where those uh, Latin American governments felt like they were um, 
an important example well, for everyone elsewhere. And you also point out in that section of the book that their relative success wasn't due to uh, sort of individual state projects, but that the cooperation between the states actually produced the successes that they had. Absolutely. I mean, or let's, we should even, you know, there are two primary reasons for the success. You know, one is that all of these governments came to power on the backs of social movements in some ways as um, products of uh, manifestations of um, social movements, different, different ways in the different countries, uh, Brazil, Argentina, Venezuela, Bolivia, Ecuador, at least all of those. Um, yes, and so the one the one cause of their you know way of reading their success is about state projects that worked through and sometimes with social movements, and then the other, like you're saying, is the the uh, projects of interdependence. So this is something that that we were quite inspired by for a period, you know, for its for the period of its. Um, of its working through that these left governments in Latin America recognize that their um, development in a geopolitical sense depended on a continental interdependency. I mean, this is another way of thinking of, you know, try to situate this in the tradition of internationalisms and putting this, this notion of a continental interdependence um, as a kind of permutation within that, so both of those uh, both of those aspects seem to us super important about those uh, governments. Yeah, I didn't mean a minute ago too to say, like once it came out of my mouth, I was thinking it sounded like, oh, it's no longer important what happened. I think I, I'm I think it's still you know that that experience of um, those progressive governments in Latin America remains a really important touchstone. I think. You know, for us, you know, to study, to study, to study, not just like, uh, to study like, um, you know, some scholar in a library, but to to study and think about what it means for what's possible for us. In in some ways, some of this is touched on. We'll get to this in the in the last section of the book. But this is, I mean, you also make the point that, and I'm, I know to some extent, of course some of the governments in Latin America were able to do this to greater or lesser degrees, but that is to use their electoral position or their position within the government to then open up space for social movements. Right. And that's, I mean, that seems, that seems to, uh, at least one really important criterion uh, to, uh, as a way of um, judging them. Um and I mean, so one way is of judging them, like whether whether one wants to support them or not, or, or uh, the nature of how progressive they are, et cetera. But also, I think about their um, power and longevity. Like I, I would argue, or almost take it as a principle that that opening towards making space for the movements is what will give continuing power to such a project. Right. Um, that's the kind of thing that has to be verified, but I, I um, yeah, I would, I would take that as a, as a kind of starting um, assumption, hypothesis. 
for anyone, even, you know, anyone who's even thinking about engaging in these electoral efforts. So for instance, here locally in Michigan City, we've thought about what it would mean, not just the form of the electoral project, but then once in, indeed we would get someone or a slate of people, say a majority elected to the city council, what would you do with the power once you were there? So would you sort of diffuse right. it? Would you, I mean, some of the ideas we've had is like to break up the ward structure to make many different wards instead of just the nine wards that we have to then use some of the resources of the city to then fund projects that would be outside of the official state, things like that. I mean, at least that's where, right. that's how we've been thinking about it. Right. No, that's, I, I think that's a, that's a fantastic way of translating, um, of translating, you know, experience to a different context. Um, you know, that's what we always have to do in these kinds of um, political uh, evaluations, you know, is read what's going on elsewhere and not reproduce it, obviously, but to translate it. Yeah, if by translation, we can understand something more than just a linguistic thing, you know, but, but, but find a way of, of, um, of re recreating it in a different context. And so that's exactly the kind of thing you're, um, you're describing there. And all of the same challenges. In other words, it does us no good in Michigan City if we are on an island. So part of our project is also <laughs> to uh, help facilitate, to help grow, to help nurture and work with other movements and groups around the region. And then hopefully throughout the state, throughout the Great Lakes, throughout the country, throughout the world. But also like maintaining contact with these national and international movements, but really helping to nurture uh, partners so we have that sort of uh, geographical cooperation as well. Um, right. So I don't want to, I'm going to actually skip the part about non-progressive social movements. And before we go into the section about this sort of like moving from the political sphere to the social sphere, I did want you to touch on two things. One, and this, this is really broad, and I know these are sort of big questions that could go on for their own two hours. But one question is how can, because I think this is something that'll play out throughout the rest of our conversation, but how can Machiavelli and Foucault sort of help us better understand power would be one question. Um, I'll stop. I know you're laughing because it's probably a absurdly broad question to ask. Um, but within the context of what we're talking about, it's brought up consistently throughout the book. And I think there's people who will be listening to this who might not understand the roots of some of those uh, concepts around power. Does that make sense? It totally makes sense, and there's a, 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 a understandably a lot of different ways of answering. Um, and um, and you know maybe one of the ways that we're treating both um, Machiavelli and Foucault, which are are is, sometimes go counter to the way they're conventionally read is that, you know, both of them are theorists of power. That's, uh, that's maybe the, the first step. And, um, we, and, and, and in, in many ways, it, it one, they're, they're often read as, uh, reading the evils of power. And hence, and hence one would assume that what would be the progressive thing or the liberatory thing would be not to take power or to somehow create so that just such that we are free from power. And instead, 
Tony and I are much more inclined to read both of them, and this is then part of our way of seeing things too, is to not um, understand power as one thing or as one, um, you know, even formation, but to recognize that, that one can take power and do so differently. So that making distinctions within power, maybe it's another way of saying it. Yeah, so we, I mean, we, um, it's not like Tony and I want to take power like we ever thought we could take power. But I mean, we, we want to be part of a process that takes power, but we don't want to just be the ones that, you know, part of a process that takes power and reproduces all the forms of domination that we're opposed to in the first place. Like that we think that it's possible and that's what one has to, it's the kind of thing I think that we're trying to get from both um, Machiavelli and Foucault is to recognize a different form of power. Okay, that's one thing. And there's, an, there's another thing that we do directly with Machiavelli, this is, and this is really just drawing on one part of his work, but it's something that in this book was very, I don't know, felt useful for us for setting things up, where he's... Um, he he says this is in the prince, you know, his most famous book, and he's he's saying that um, if you want, he he has this metaphor about the mountains and the plains, and he says, you know, if you want to paint the mountaintops, you should, uh, if you want to paint the paint the plains, yeah, I should start that way, you know, you should be up on the mountaintop and get the view of it. But if you want to paint the mountaintop, you should be down on the plains. And so what he means by that is that uh, you need to read power from below. And in some ways, that the, 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 the position from below is the one that always has the truer or more accurate view of the forms of power. Um, that's his metaphor, you know, the up, below, up and below, you know, the plains and the, and the mountaintops. But, in, you know, Machiavelli in saying that is really in line with, you know, we could translate that into or recognize that being repeated in a number of other discourses. I mean, throughout... Um, feminist thought of the last half of the 20th century, there's always been the epistemological claim, you know, the claim about knowledge, which is that one sees uh, knowledge more clearly, more accurately from the standpoint of the subordinated. I mean, it's the same thing we have in um, the black radical tradition. I mean, I can think of one way of Du Bois saying this, or even uh, James Baldwin saying this too, which is that, you know, black Americans not only um, have to know black America, they also know white America better, whereas white Americans really only understand a, a very small portion. You know, so that all of these saying, now this is going back to Machiavelli's metaphor too, which is that those who are subordinated really understand and have a privileged position of knowledge. Right. Yeah, there right. you go. So, I mean, Machiavelli, I mean, maybe we didn't have to go to the 16th century for it, but it, that's sort of our um, approaching questions of power from below and recognizing that from below one understands them best. Um, that's, um, yeah, a principle, a principle that seems useful for us to follow. And something that the listeners might be uh, more familiar with than, say, Machiavelli or Foucault would be, this is somewhat sort of seen in uh, Howard Zinn's work, correct? 
Sure. Would that, I right. mean, in one way? In the notion of a people's history, right. Yeah. Um, absolutely. Okay. Absolutely. That's, that's another way of, of, of thinking the same thing. And so, yeah, there too, it's that, um, at least this, you know, this claim, claim about knowledge, which is, um, that those who are subordinated actually know more. Right. Yeah. That makes sense. I mean, yeah, it's, I mean, it's sort of counterintuitive because no, one normally thinks that those who are privileged, you know, have all the access to knowledge and they can hold, hold all the knowledge, et cetera. But they're actually, this is the, the claim, but you're, you're, you're working it out exactly right there too, which is that those, those, who, those who are privileged are actually myopic, you know, like actually can't see. Yep. And those who are subordinated, it's not like it's that great to be subordinated, of course, but there, it does come with a greater knowledge. So anyway, approaching these questions of power, then one has to um, approach them from below. Maybe that's just the methodological point from the standpoint of those who are subordinated. So looking, one of the arguments you make in the book is that we have to look beyond the political realm to the sort of social economic realms of uh, what you guys call uh, social production and reproduction. Um, that's sort of where we can see uh, people's capacity for new forms of cooperation, for new forms of autonomy, that we have to look to this social and economic terrain. So in order to understand social domination, we have and to understand its relationship to the nature of political problems, um, but that it also these forms of domination also sort of provide us with weapons and tools, opportunities for resistance, and that we should recognize these opportunities. So in other words, that contemporary forms of domination can reveal uh, our productive capacity for autonomy uh, that we have sort of an everyday life. And that, to your point uh, before, that this must be seen from below. So can we talk about these these processes of social production and reproduction and how they provide tools for the multitude to uh, also fight back with. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, the, and the, um, I do feel, I mean, this is something that Tony and I were, you know, we started out just working on the things that you and I talked about before about this you know, directly political questions about organization and movements, which, you know, we're both passionate about and everything, but we feel like when, when talking about those political forms on their own, there's something that ends up just turning around in circles and ending up being kind of sterile in part because it doesn't um, get at what people's actual capacities are and like what people's. Um, and so that's why it's partly in recognizing what people are capable of that, um, we feel like this political discussion always has to be complemented with a question about the social or like you said, yeah, the, the realm of social production, reproduction, you know, that's uh, um, what, what, what you were saying there about the weapons, you know, that's a directly Marx or Marx angles kind of thought, which is that capital produces by necessity for its own development it also produces weapons that can be used against it. It's a kind of, you know, I don't know, counterintuitive thought, but you know how the Marx and Engels end the first part of the manifesto when they say that capital produces above all its own grave diggers. Um, and so, you know, it, it has to produce those subjects 
in order to develop, you know, in order for its own interest, it has to produce those subjects who are, can, can rise against it, and even to give them tools, you know, through education, through, uh, these are the kind of weapons that are at the, at their, um, at their, that are put in their hands. You know, so in some ways, this is, you know, it's not just Marx, but it's, it's certainly a Marx principle, which is um, when you're reading a, a social form of domination, look to the ways that, the, that, that those structures of domination also create weapons that can be used against it. Uh, and, and, then, and then, you know, that should be part of, uh, of a strategy, a resistance. You know, the people aren't just dominated. People are also given um, the weapons to fight against their domination. So anyway, that's it's sort of like a, um, yeah, it's a it's a method. You know, go go looking for that. That's what that you know. That's sort of what Marx is saying, and that's and that's in essence what we're thinking here. What are what are the, what is it about capitalist society today that provides um, those who were subordinated by capital? the weapons for anti-capitalist struggle. That's, you know, the way to start. And that's intimately connected to this concept of labor being increasingly social in nature and the, and the products that it produces, the commodities social in nature as well. Yeah. Right. I mean, that's, yes, that's, that's definitely true. And, um, and, and what we mean by that partly I'm only hesitating here because this. Uh, I ever every once in a while I hesitate when it's sort of like a big argument opens like a sea in front of me, and I get a little bit, you know, try to figure where to dive in. Um, Tony and I and, and a group of others, you know, have tried for for decades to to, to 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 figure the right way of understanding, you know, and explaining how the capitalist economy has changed in the last maybe fifty-ish years, and and it's starting with a starting with the assumption that I think is generally accepted, you know, it seems this doesn't seem to me the controversial part, which is that previously for, for many decades in the global capitalist economy, factory, factory labor and factory production, industrial production had the predominant role. And in the last, you know, at least since the 1970s, let's say, in the dominant countries, but also in the in the global hierarchy, industrial production no longer has that central space, and so we're we uh, that central position, and so we've been trying to come up with different terms, and we've we've gone through series of them, each of them helpful but unsatisfying, to try to grasp what what form of production is emerging to to fill that position that industrial production did previously. Um, you know, we had we had at a certain point tried to talk about immaterial production. You know, meaning production of things that at least have a strong immaterial component: uh, images, ideas, code, um, relationships, etc. Um, we've also tried to call this biopolitical production, which I think has actually a lot of explanatory power, although it's maybe the more one of the more complicated concepts and, you know, not a familiar concept to many. Um, 
And that this, I mean, another way we're doing it is just as, as you're just saying here, which is to think of it in terms of social production, whereas, let's see, I, I, w- I would say something like this, that we have, a, we have a, the, the habit of thinking of the capitalist economy as being aimed towards commodities, as if they were the end point. And there are all kinds of relations of production, social relations, et cetera, that lead to and facilitate that. Instead, we view it the opposite way, that instead the, the production of commodities are really only uh, useful for capital insofar as they lead towards the real endpoint, which are social relations. You know, so you could think of the product of the capitalist economy as producing uh, as producing social relations. And so in that sense, you know, you could think of it as social production. Um, yeah, Mark says at a certain point, it's a slightly different context, but it's something like this, is that um, yeah, the, the capital is a social relation mediated by the production of things. That's sort of what we're... Anyway, it's a, that might be a complicated concept, but it's um, trying to grasp this notion of social production or even the production of social relations, trying to grasp the way in which... Um, the capitalist economy has shifted since the 1970s. And, and the reason for doing this, like that's to come back to what we were at just 10 minutes ago, which is the reason for doing this is because understanding this might highlight what kinds of tools or weapons are put at our disposal by the nature of capitalist uh, production, you know, within capitalist society for our, being able to, 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 to struggle against it. I was listening to one of your lectures on the book and you mentioned uh, hospice nurses during that ex- uh, as an example. Yeah. I was going to ask you if that could also be extended. The way I was thinking of it reading through the book was I've done some work in the service sector economy for a while. I was a night manager at a bar and the what would I say? I mean, I was thinking of bartenders and Uber drivers, the people that we would like connect with regularly and the amount of social interactions that they would have. And then also in our organizing efforts here, it's like if we talk to a steel worker, that steel worker has a, it seems to me, maybe in some context has a sort of limited realm of social interactions. Whereas if we talk to like a local bartender and what they do um, beyond just pouring drinks and serving food is like, you know, they're psychologists, they're, um, you know, they're therapists. They, uh, I mean, I had to, I left, I've done ironworking work, construction work. I left the bar, uh, more exhausted from talking with people and listening to people tell me their problems over drinks at three o'clock in the morning than I ever left, uh, the workplace. But I was also like able to build a set of skills to interact with people, to facilitate relationships with people. And so in our work, I mean, I'm thinking of this as like, even in this service sector economy, say beyond something like hospice nurses, that, I mean, everyone from Uber drivers to bartenders has an enormous set of social skills that they can bring to the table in terms of political uh, organizing. Yeah, that's terrific. I mean, that's exactly, that seems, that's, that seems exactly right. You know what, in the, um, in the 19th century version and the and 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 a lot of the 20th century, the assumption was that industrial workers were privileged politically 
because they were had the um, had the means for organizing that were included in their job. You know that they're brought together in the same space, they're crowded around the same machines, that they have to communicate with each other as part of the labor process, and hence the political communication is already embedded in it. Um, the way you're talking about it seems to me, you know, it's creating on a social space, you know, like outside of the factory walls in, in society, the same kinds of um, construction of relationships that, and, and cooperation that's required for political organizing. You know, the, so that like when, even when Marx is thinking in, in volume one of Capital about the kind of cooperation that happens in the factory for production, that 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 cooperation in production is a kind of basis for a cooperation in political organizing. Um, and you're, you, the way you're describing it's exactly the same, it's actually the same, let's say, uh, way of thinking, but on a different, on a different terrain. Um, yeah, I guess that's right. I mean, I think that's right. Um, it, one of the things that, like when we say social production and reproduction, like uh, I- insisting on the reproductive component, there are a number of reasons for that. You know, one of them is, you know, the gendered nation of, nature of a lot of reproductive work, sometimes, you know, unwaged reproductive work. But also as, you know, the way you're talking about the kind of reproduction of, of social relations themselves, you know, which is a kind of skill. Um, I like also the way you're talking about it. Sorry, I'm just keep going on for the different things about what you, what you already said, which is that, um, you know, just like I said that, that this, this Marx method to, to try to recognize what are the uh, weapons that workers have in capitalist society and could use um, in an anti-capitalist thing, you know, like if we go again to the industrial area, part of the, the pride of the, you know, the auto worker, the industrial worker, was that they knew how to do everything about making that machine the same, you know, way, you know, the engineers don't know that, and certainly the bosses don't know that. Here, like you're saying, that there's a kind of recognition of the power of this uh, construction of social cooperation, construction of social communication, um, that the bartender or the hospice worker, we can think of a number of other, um, you know, way it works in different, in different of these tests that we want to try to recognize what is the power that these people already have and that they have necessarily in their work that then could be translated in, 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 in political terms. It's one of the reasons why I love this book. I mean, one, because one of the main tasks we face as organizers on the ground here is that a lot of people feel disempowered. And I think a lot of the messages mm-hmm. they get from uh, left progressive sites, different analyses of neoliberalism, which we'll get to seen from below, um, that people are left sort of thinking, well, shit, I can't do it. Like, what am I? I'm just this precarious worker who shows up to two, three different jobs. And, you know, I, the media is telling me I don't really have any skills or that I'm quote unquote unskilled labor. Um, all, all of these things. I mean, I, I personally appreciate this this concept of sort of looking at this from a different perspective because it actually helps us to reinforce the fact that people actually do have much more power than they often think they do. 
So I, I guess that's just like a small way of saying yeah. p- thanks for posing it that way, because oftentimes it's posed from the opposite angle. And which also leaves us with this question of like, if you're not an industrial worker or if you don't occupy a position of labor within, say, a critical, some part of like the critical infrastructure of the political economy, like if you don't work in an oil field or if you don't work in a, um, you know, warehouse logistical factory, et cetera, that there's really not much for you to do in this process of revolution or, uh, you know, political organizing. And, and I think that's something that people on the left still sort of, um, what would I say, pass along to people. This message that like, well, if you're not part of these major, like if you're not a, let me put it more concretely, if you're not a longshoreman who can shut down ports, then you really don't have much power. You're saying something much different, which is that our, which is a bigger point that you're making in the book. And that is that the sort of field for political battle is not just in the workplace and in the economy, but that we have to combine uh, the social sphere, the political sphere, the cultural sphere, the uh, economic terrain. Is that correct? I mean, is that getting to... Absolutely. Okay. Absolutely, yeah. And and we... Um, absolutely, we could, when we jump to this question about uh, social strike, um, that might be one way of, of fleshing this out. Yeah. Yeah, let's, let's actually... I want to... Before we get there, though, let me ask you two things. Let me let me get you to talk a little bit about private property versus the common because it's different. I mean, I like the way that you pose this as well is that the issue isn't who has it and who doesn't have it, but it's sort of the very concept, the very nature of private property itself is brought into question, that private property always includes political and economic coercion. You mentioned that law is sort of a political weapon, Um the common is not property and it's not owned by either. Again, I think one of the things you do throughout the book is sort of break down dichotomies, which I really enjoy. And that is, you know, you're not arguing that this either needs to be state owned or private entities will own this, but that we have to find different ways to manage the ideas, codes, and culture you mentioned, built environments such as cities, social services, and the earth and its ecosystems. But that the goal is collective self-management, not in the form of the state, and not in the form of private entities. Yeah, for us, you know, for us, the question is, it's often thought, you know, that there's, that the only alternatives are either private property or public property. You know, either, either it's, it's owned by, you know, individuals and corporations or it's owned by the state. And we're, we're trying to introduce another way of thinking about it. It's certainly not between the two. It's completely other than those two, which is thinking about it as non-property, you know, that the common, you know, so what we mean by the common, I guess I should even back up this way, like a simplistic, uh, anyone who's been through the first uh, year of law school and has to do the property course will certainly make this in a more complicated way, but it's a simplistic way of thinking about property, you know, both state property and, and individual private property is, that involves two things. One is um, a exclusive uh, right to use, you know, like uh, who has access to it. And the other is a monopoly over decision-making. Like I can decide what happens over it. That's what it means to own it. And so it, which is, seems to us both true in terms of private property or public property, you know, whether the state decides what can happen with it and who has access to it or whether it's, it privately decided. 
What the common is, is is the opposite on both of those counts, you know, so that there is both open access to whatever wealth we're talking about. You know, you might first think about it as the beach or the, you know, a field, but, but it's also true about, you know, music or ideas, open access and some collective mechanism, a democratic mechanism of decision making. You know, so it doesn't mean like, by the by the common we don't mean just that, you know, it's um, completely unmanaged, but rather that it's managed democratically. So how is it that we can share the resources of the world? I mean, that's what. So in one way, you could think about this, and it's important to think about this in ecological terms. You know, what are the ways that we can come to um, a, a not only just but sustainable way of sharing the earth and its ecosystems, but also think about it in terms of the products of, you know, products of, of, of music and ideas and code and, and uh, all kinds of cultural um, things, all kinds of property itself, you know, the city, housing, etc. Um, yeah, so partly, I mean, in, in some ways, I, I mean, I guess I should, I don't know if this is coming clean or whatever, but, you know, we, we are still working on the communist assumption that the abolition of private property is the political goal. But, you know, when I say abolition of private property, it sounds so 19th century. Instead, we should recognize that there are every day in our lives, part of the political movement is to discover ways of sharing forms of wealth that we can manage democratically, you know, that we can decide over together. I mean, that's what, isn't that what all the encampments did really is they transformed part of the city into a common space right? where, where we shared it. And then, you know, we shared it. It was neither private property, you know, the, the encampment was ne neither private nor public property. It was a common space that however awkwardly, through general assemblies and other things, you know, we tried to have this democratic decision making over. Um, there are a lot of other, you know, there are a lot of there. There are lots of examples. I mean, I think this notion of the common, whether it's called that or not, is, you know, progressively more part of our world, or needs to be progressively more part of our world. But we have examples of it all the time. Yeah, so in some ways, by saying um, communist uh, goal of the abolition of private property, it makes it all sound, I don't know, like something arcane. Um, but if you just start thinking about the processes of sharing and, it's, and that so many parts of our lives that only work because we share them, and that, and that in fact not sharing them makes them so much less productive and useful and, and, and socially engaged, you know? So anyway, that's, that's, um, th there's a lot of, th there's a lot of things for Tony and me that flow, that flow from that, you know, that because partly, uh, partly our idea is that increasingly capitalist economy needs the common. It, it's always, it's always trying to find ways to, to reprivatize the common. But in order to be productive, it needs for, you know, ideas and code and images and culture and all kinds of other things to be common. And then it tries to recuperate them, you know, to 
to get you to pay for things, you know, that, <laughs> that seem like they ought to be common right. um, and that you ought to have access to them. Um, anyway, this dynamic, it, it, increasingly, you know, if you think about the products of the economy, and especially these ones that are, you know, immaterial, immaterial, like I was saying before, it's increasingly difficult to privatize them. You know, they really function because they're common and when they're common. You know, when you start making scientific discoveries, proprietary information, they they lose a lot of their potential. Um, similarly, you know, with music, when you when you when you when you make it intellectual property, it's you know suddenly not nearly as dynamic. You know, when people can't sample from it and and use it. Um, so, in some ways, this is what we were you know coming back to this weapons and tools thing, which is that um, increasingly today capital requires the common. And so in some ways, we it's it's not just that we need to fight for the common and, and tear down the walls of private property. There's, it's already kind of embedded within capital's need for development. So we, we've just got, um, you know, a richer terrain than you might have thought, you know, to to struggle on the basis of the common. Well, I think you're touching on something that we hear pretty regularly as well, which is, you know, we're going through a series of housing uh, campaigns right now. Yeah. And one of the things we keep hearing from people is that they don't either, they want, they don't want to either own their home or rent their home. Like both situations actually really suck. I mean, either in one, <laughs> in one way you're beholden to a rent to some kind of landlord and you're paying exorbitant amounts of rent for a place that's run down and so on and so forth. Or you're trapped into a 30-year mortgage, you don't, you, and you don't own the home, and you're then you yeah. you have to deal with all these liabilities and so forth. I know it's probably, I don't know, maybe somewhat of a a really small small example, but I'm just trying to, I'm trying to take all no, the no, theories that you guys. I'm, I mean, it's not small at all, and and so sometimes, you know, it, it, sometimes there are the possibilities with with regard to housing to insist on. Um, you know, common and open situations, you know, it's, and, and, and maybe there will be more, you know, so one of the, um, one of the projects in Spain that Tony and I were inspired by, you know, following out of the 2011 things um, was this thing centered in Barcelona called the PAH, the platform against uh, hipotecas, like uh, loans, you know, mortgages, that's it. Um, and so they were, you know, it's essentially is an anti-eviction uh, campaign, you know, which we've seen the U.S. all over too, um, and combined with a um, housing occupation, you know, like occupying unoccupied buildings to create housing for people. So it was a sort of, um, yeah, a combination of struggling over, uh, you know, rents and a kind of rent strike together with um, creating common housing, you know, housing that would be, um, you know, I guess formally squatted, but, but open in that sense. Um, it seemed like, and, and, you know, something that was a very, um, and has been a very large and institutional project, you know, not, a, not, just, um, uh, not just a minority project. Um, but it seemed to me an example of, um, there can be a continuity between um, these 
you know, you don't always have to think about it always in terms of making things immediately common. It often comes as part of uh, larger projects. Right. That makes sense. I mean, because one of the yeah. things we're obviously interested in is not just our eviction moratorium in Indiana runs up on June 30th. And so, you know, one of the things we're thinking about is, of course, we need to immediately defend people who are going to be booted out of their homes, but we can't stop there. And then to the points that you guys are bringing up in the book, we also don't want to turn it over to like, hey, let's do more government housing because people have had horrific experiences with government housing as much in some ways as they've had horrific experiences with private landlords. So this helps me um, and will help us, I think, sort of think through some of these concepts. And in fact, I think what we'll do is we'll also look into the project that you're mentioning uh, just to see sort of what they've been doing and, you know, the different lessons they've learned. And um, that helps us, in other words. Uh Um, So Right. They're awesome. Yeah. The... These passions for the common, you write, require a new subject. And I'm not going to lie here. I do think that I have no fucking idea what you were talking about here, but I tried to understand it. And it was like, okay, so this process, I mean, yeah, I'm not going to bullshit you. The, uh, this process, again, happens from below through cooperation. I get that part. This idea that there's sort of no liberating ourselves from technology. I do understand that part as well. I was, we just recently interviewed Christian Parenti for a new book that he's writing. And he sort of made this statement where he was like, we're hostages to modernity. Now, that's probably means a lot more to you um, than it. I mean, to us, what it meant was like, there's no just getting rid of that. There's no going back. And this is something that you also mentioned throughout the book. So it is kind of tied to what you guys are working on. But when Christian said that, we were like, okay, this makes a lot of sense because we keep hearing from people, you know, particularly our friends, I think, in the sort of deep green ecological movement who are like, we just need to ditch all these forms of technology. We've got to go back to a sort of pre-technological uh, way of way of life, way of being, and so forth. But I don't really see that as being possible, uh, number one. And number two, I'm not yeah. sure if it's even ideal. And so you write, and this is where I'll need you to probably explain this to me, um, no ontological, that there's, quote, no ontological division between machine and man, Uh, This being tied to the changing composition of capital, uh, you write industrial automation, social necromation, the site of production being the society, not the factory, and the automation of the factory, the digitization of the society, which I think I get there, but I'm trying to understand this sort of concept of machinic subjectivities. Is there a way to explain that briefly, or is is this... Yeah, I mean... The, it, it, or at least this is here's a, the, at least where we're starting with this, which is that um, machines machines are really uh, especially in capitalist society, machines become uh, capital's reappropriation of of our own, you know, scientific and intellectual production. You know, so machines are really like, this is what Marx calls them fixed capital. Like they're, they're, um, they're a kind of accretion of, uh, human production. Yeah. So, you know, that the, that the machine isn't separate from the human. We, you know, it's always, it's always a result of human production. So we should think, you know, this is, you know, Marx's way of always saying these things is to contrast living and dead 
labor. You know, so machines are in some sense dead labor. They're they're labor. You know, they're human labor, but they're they they've been yeah I don't know solidified, passed, something like that. But they're not they're not really separated um, from us. We shouldn't view the machines as as yeah, there we said ontologically different. You know, they're 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 really part of our our own production. Yeah. So so let me just then maybe this this part's gonna at least lead lead to a political problem, which is which is this um, in the industrial workers movement there was long the rallying cry to reappropriate the means of production and to reappropriate the machines, you know, to take over the factory, to take over the machines. And so one of the things that Tony and I've been thinking and puzzling over, you know, and recently is to think about this in the gig economy. You know, so I think, I hope that that, that that slogan makes some sort of sense in the factory, you know, to take over, to reappropriate those machines, which were our, it's reappropriating because they were ours in the first place. It was created from our knowledge as, that are then concretized and, and, and appropriated by capital. What would that mean by in the gig economy? Like, so I, I was inspired by this um, strike in Brussels some years ago, three, four years ago, and it was Deliveroo drivers. You know, uh, they were, it's a, um, a food service, you know, bicyclists. You know that uh, what what do we we have things like that right? What are they called? I think uh, it's Grubhub, like Uber Eats, you yep. know, something like that. Yeah, bicyclists who take food from restaurants to places, and so they went on strike. The deliverers, you know, the bicycling deliverers went on strike, and what they demanded was not just you know higher pay or something. What they demanded was to control of the algorithm. But that seemed really interesting to me, and that seemed to me a kind of example of a reappropriation of the machines, you know, cause that's the, the algorithm for, you know, Uber and the Amazon drivers and, and these, you know, food deliverers, it's the algorithm that's the machine that's controlling them. Um, right. And so I, I, and I don't know exactly what it would, you know, what it would, how it would work, but that's, a, it seems to me this question about, um, taking control of the machine um, it's different in these in the gig economy but it seems to me a, a potent frame of thinking about it yeah, so anyway sense. all of this it, maybe here's another way of approaching the whole thing just from the completely from the outside which is just that tony and i don't think about political struggle as one where we need to free ourselves from the machines what we need to do is to be able to reorient the machines um, and use them differently. Um, and so that's where this, this, you know, the algorithm of these uh, food delivering, you know, bicyclists comes in. Right. Um, and, and you're right. You can think about it in the industrial context. Um, I mean, I think that's somewhat related to where you were starting with the, with their, with our, I guess, you know, rather arcane claim about, you know, human and machine being on the, not having ontological distinction. Yeah. I don't that know. makes sense. You leave that part aside. No, no, that make that makes a lot of sense. Well, one of my, this is probably too much for today, but I, I, 
when I mentioned that I was going to be speaking with you um, to a friend, he had said, ask Michael what he thinks about the ability to Democrat. Let me make sure I have this right in my head. The ability to democratically control these forms of technology. And then he had referenced uh, Lewis Mumford, Technics and Civilization. And he was, he was sort of making this like critique that there is no way to democratically control these. I don't, I mean, I, I have no, uh, well, but that, I mean, I think that's like to come back to these algorithms again, this is like really interesting academic work that I know of. And I'm sure it goes outside of academic things too, which is just to ask, you know, that these algorithms that are used, you know, like not only for these gig workers, but all kinds of other algorithms that control, you know, like, uh, Google search engine, stuff like that. Which is, one shouldn't treat these machines as if they were politically or value neutral. You know, like, for instance, people do really interesting work about that there are uh, racial and gender hierarchies that are implicit in the algorithms themselves. Um, You know, because algorithms are, of course, only, you know, this is where we started in a way, a kind of uh, accretion of human construction and human inputs. And so of course that they have, so one one can't just, um, one can't just assume that we could take the machine as if it were a neutral tool and use it for whatever ends one have to, might have to already critique the machine itself. Right. um, To be able to use it differently. Anyway, I mean, what, what your, your friend's point is, is a super good one, you know, which is that one, um, can't look at them just neutrally. That makes but sense. That doesn't, for me, mean that one should. Um, and I, I don't think your friend. I, I'm not. Don't want to credit your friend with this either. You know, just. But it doesn't mean that we should just reject the machines and and um, and assume that we could struggle without them. Right. Right. I think we have to use them critically, or or rather attack them and use them at the same time or something like that, which is going to mean something different in all these cases. But just think of what it could mean for these um, food deliverer drivers who want to control the algorithm, you know, which distributes them and pays them and, you know, um, you know, sets them on different jobs, you know, that that having control over that machine could be a really important workplace demand. Right. And it could be that through collective forms of self-management and democratic control that people do indeed decide to sort of scale back in some ways, maybe ramp up other sectors. Um, Of course, all of this will be tied to the connection they have with movements internationally. So, for instance, if a movement or a group of people in North America are asking for a reappropriation of certain forms of technology, but then they're in contact with, say, uh, collective groups in South America who are saying, well, yeah, we can we can go with that, but we also have to take into consideration that we're the sort of uh, ground zero for the extraction of the materials that produce these, then there'll have to be like an, an interplay between right. those two groups. And that makes a lot of sense to me, at least, or at least right. how it could unfold. Right. That's good. Um, let, let's bring this to the modern administrative state, because I I don't, uh, let me ask this question. This this part about Weber in reverse in the modern administrative state, part of this, the way that I read it, 
this section was a critique, a, a different understanding of the state and how it came about and how we should see it from below, which is another, again, the concept that's used throughout. But also that the way that I read into this was it was sort of a warning of like what we shouldn't do in creating our own institutions. Right. Does that make sense or is that not at all what you were trying to get at with that section of sort of like critiquing this modern administrative state? Yeah, I mean, we're, we're also trying to interpret there, like leading to interpret there what it means, um, again, in the communist tradition to abolish the state. Mm -hmm. um, you know, a little bit like um, the same way that the abolition of private property doesn't mean that there'll be no structures of managing our social wealth, you know, that um, abolishing the state also doesn't mean that there will be no structures of governance, um, et cetera. And that's what, so in some ways, I, I guess I would, I would put it that way that, that um, trying to think through some of these um, traditional notions even of the nightmare of the state you know so kafka's um you know nightmares within the castle or the other you know before the law or something like that um trying to think what uh what in 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 this context that kind of abolition what that should what that should mean and what it should mean to abolish the state i mean i guess there, there is another sub, I don't know if it's subterranean, you know, like a thread running through the book about the Paris Commune. Um, and they, you know, so the book started with a kind of um, Marx's reading of what the commune arts got wrong. Um, but here we're, we're, we're trying to like interpret what, the commune was about like the extent to which the the paris commune did enact a abolition of the state and what that and what that looks like is Maybe it all i just said really what is what the aim of what we're getting out there rather than the content but but what we're what we're trying to figure out is it frustrating i feel like i've been bullied into by my friends on the left into just taking like just that I've been sort of bullied into this position of just like the state is going to exist. This is the way it is. And it's just too fucking bad. You have to make it what you want to make it. I feel like this is the dominant kind of, and I say that somewhat jokingly about being bullied, but it's like, <laughs> I, I do feel that way. Cause when I first got involved with political work, I was like, man, I mean, what really turned me on about different communist and even anarchist traditions was this idea that there's something other than not in between, but as you're arguing something other than private control or the state controlling things or that those would be like the two dominant uh, ways that we would conceive of different political projects. And I feel like in recent years, I don't know if this is the result. I don't actually don't know what this would be the result of, but I do feel like in recent years, there's been much less of a discussion about this and much more of a discussion about like, this is the state's going to be here. This is the way it is. And now you just kind of have to work within this. I mean, do you get that sense as well on the left or am I reading too much into my own personal experiences? I don't know. I don't know about, um, I, I'm not sure if I have had the same, um, what do you call it? Trajectory of experiences that you were just mentioning, like of, 
of less. But, you know, when we're, and this is, uh, when we talk about smashing the state here and, and when, when Marx was talking about it too in the context of the Paris Commune, it's not, I think it's a, it's a, it's a kind of, um, how should we say it? It's a criterion of evaluating political forms or forms of governance. And so the, the state, you know, like it sounds like when Marx says smash the state or when the communists say smash the state, it could easily sound in the first place like it means it means like no um, no governance whatsoever, you know, completely. And that's not what it means. What it means is that the state is defined by a gap between the rulers and the ruled. And what smashing the state is, is a kind of maybe even asymptotic project for closing that gap between uh, the rulers and the rules so that, you know, so that people actually are able collectively to rule themselves. Um, I mean, so I, I guess it's, I, I'm, I'm reverting now to a principle rather than a, a an actual political description, because I, I think it can be used as a kind of yardstick or way of understanding the direction of political projects. You know, we, we want, and so even when dealing with, um, I don't know, uh, elected governments or something that we can, that we can still evaluate the degree to which they can lessen the gap between the rulers and the ruled. Um, yeah, so it both provides a yardstick and, and also of course, a, um, aspiration, a goal. That makes sense. That makes sense. It did, did, Let's get to this concept of the entrepreneur, the entrepreneur of the, of the multitude. It's funny. I mean, uh, obviously, when I first saw this section, I was like, oh, shit. I was like, <laughs> like I mean, we get bombarded with. But you, you go into this. I mean, you, you know, you're like, yeah. let, let's 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 actually use this. It's term. a concept most hated by our friends. I have to it, say it, it is. Um, <laughs> yes. Although although this is the, the, the prudence of 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 my partner, because Tony and I were for a while considering titling the book enterprise and even having the insignia from the starship enterprise on the cover. We <laughs> thought that would be fun. Um, but and she, she said, no, people will not understand that. Um, <laughs> you know, so this, here's, here's a way of approach. I mean, so uh, like you were just uh, hinting at, you know, like we know perfectly well the way entrepreneurship has become the primary code word for neoliberalism. And when they say entrepreneurship, like in the university or in an arts group or something like that, it means that you're fucked and that you have to start raising your own money. You're not going to get right. any more funding, et cetera. Right. And um, so we, you know, like we know perfectly well how the, how the concept functions as a key to neoliberalism, but you know, I, I it's, it's in part, yeah, you know, it's a little bit like this in a lot of our work. I feel like, the good of what Tony and I do is to recuperate key vocabulary of the left or of liberation movements that have been corrupted by the right and have been taken away, like freedom, democracy itself. You know, sometimes I feel that's the way about love. Um, but anyway, to, to like restore left concepts and take them back. This is, we're doing the exact opposite thing. Like entrepreneurship is a right-wing concept. But we're, we think we can, we can make use of it and make sense out of it in a, use, in a useful way um, because 
entrepreneurship, you know, of the multitude is a kind of, it's a principle of organization. You know, it's, you know, what's an enterprise anyway? I mean, the enterprise, um, an enterprise in a daring endeavor. I mean, that's really the, what the word means. Like, that's why it's the Starship Enterprise. Um, and so the kind of entrepreneurship we want to talk about are daring organizational projects, you know, projects of social cooperation. Um, yeah, think of Lenin as a great entrepreneur in that, in that, uh, in that sense. But then also, you know, the various projects, you know, on the large or small scale, like that these are, that these are enterprises. We have to recognize the way that they, um, that projects are, that, that these kinds of organizational projects are, are required. So that's what we mean. That's what I mean by entrepreneurship. Um, it's, you know, uh, you, one, one could just say, you know, like even being, uh, you know, giving us the benefit of the value, you, you could just say, well, you know, Michael and Tony have a weird sense of humor. Um, <laughs> so, and that's, you know, that's, that's I, undoubtedly true. I was, um, oh, go ahead. I'm sorry. But that, I mean, to, to us, it seems useful um, as, a, as a way of naming the kinds of projects that are necessary you know, the kinds of collective projects that are necessary. And so by, by, uh, you know, giving the, adding that it's not just entrepreneurship in general, but the entrepreneurship of the multitude, you know, as opposed to the entrepreneurship of the bosses. Um, yeah, it's just, um, a way of understanding it's the difference of these kinds of projects and how they're organized. And the way you describe it, it, how I viewed the entrepreneur, and tell me if this is way off, I, I was sort of viewing it the way that you were and Tony were describing it in the book. I was sort of viewing the entrepreneurship of the multitude as like a chef who isn't creating something new, but is taking like all these different materials and ingredients and sort of like mixing them around and then coming up with different ideas throughout that, that you're not like actually inventing anything, but that you're sort of like taking little bits and pieces from different spheres from different movements from different ideas and then like trying to combine them in a way where they could work together yeah that's i mean that's great and that i mean even though he doesn't use that metaphor that's that's even embedded like because partly we wanted to recognize what the capitalist idea of entrepreneurship is and so the 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 theorist or you know thinker we economist really we we mostly focus on this Joseph Schumpeter, um, and that's pretty much the way what you were just saying is the way he thinks of the entrepreneur too. You know the entrepreneur for him he's writing in the early 20th century saying these things. You know the entrepreneur is not the inventor. The the entrepreneur is someone who takes these things and makes new combinations. You know takes. Uh, this you know form of labor power, these resources, this technology, and puts them together. You know makes new combinations. And so we were trying to, in some ways, bridge that. You know, like these new combinations together with um, a notion of cooperation. You know that that we find in Marx, but we find other places too. You know, so that the it's not just it, it's both the the kind of combination you're talking about. 
plus the constructing the means of cooperation. Yeah, so that that that's what, um, and that's then then let's look at all of these. You know, that gives a way of reading the kinds of projects that we're doing all the time. You know, of of um, of creating a new social space, of even of mounting a um, uh, an anti eviction campaign. You know, that these are enterprises. You know, in the same way of that put together. Um, and put together these various existing things like your chef, but also that construct new forms of cooperation, and that that's what is really constitutes these um, these enterprises. I'm not going to get into a bunch. I, I'm going to ask you here quickly about uh, neoliberalism as seen from below. I haven't heard other too many other people describe it that way, other than a labor scholar and friend of Sergio and I's. Uh, his name is Kim Sipes. There's been some other people. Huh. There's been some other people as well, but very. I mean, this I've I've only heard this a few times, and I'm really interested in that. Um, what I do want to encourage listeners to do for a really in-depth discussion of part three of the book is to listen to the Dig podcast from Jacobin, um, because there's a really interesting discussion with Michael and the host of that podcast that really gets in depth into part three. And so I sort of, instead of trying to go through that section again and sort of rehash what you've already talked about in that hour and 20 minute conversation that you had uh, during that podcast, I would just encourage people to check out that part. So for people who have read the book and are now listening to this, they're like, okay, there's a somewhat of a gap, I guess, but I, I really want to encourage people to listen to that interview that you did with Jacobin. Um, the This question of neoliberalism as a response to 68, again, seen from below, in order to understand neoliberalism, we must start with the multitude. Uh, neoliberalism also is a political project that didn't get rid of the state, which I really like that you talk about this. This was something else that we talked with Christian at length about, and that is it sort of reinvented the state, uh, the state becoming increasingly militarized, and then the role of finance capital in this process. So this extractive quality, but then this extractive quality that also produces a level of abstraction. Um, can you sort of... I know those are big concepts, but this will lead us into sort of the last section of the book. Well, the, I mean, the, the first part of the, the, your, the general frame there, you know, that neoliberalism is a response, um, is it, it's, it's in ways, another manifestation of a principle that Tony and I, a methodological principle, I guess, which it, it, for us goes under the rubric of, resistances prior to power. Like normally one thinks, now I'm really stepping back into the, you know, conceptual, you know, one normally one thinks that, you know, power acts and then people resist it. Um, and so then people are always, you know, the resistance is always something that comes second. Uh, you know, power is exerted and then, and we're, we're tr trying to read it historically and even in the, the, the nature of struggles and the reorganization of power, trying to read that the opposite way, which is that resistance comes first and then power reacts to that. So for instance, this, like you say, with neoliberalism, you know, a conventional, and, and I'm not contesting this part, notion of neoliberalism in the US is that in the 1970s sometime, um, there is a move away from, from industrial production in the US, you know, out, outsourcing to uh, other subordinated parts of the world and a, and a shift towards finance or finance and service industry, something like that. Um, and the neoliberalism is formed of that 
with that moment. Our count, our challenge, I guess, you know, our way of thinking about it is that it's not like uh, capitalist power decided some time in the 1970s, oh, wouldn't this be much better? No, they were reacting to the confluence of, str- of struggles in the 1960s, you know, not only uh, U.S. labor struggles, global labor struggles, anti-colonial struggles, the early feminist movements, uh, uh, off, uh, a kind of um, yeah, constellation of struggles that made a certain regime of power and of capitalist organization impossible. And so neoliberalism comes not as an autonomous invention, but as a, a kind of protective mechanism as a as a reaction um yeah and we we would try in all kinds of ways to see the developments you know so capitalist reorganization or capitalist development as always being a response to worker insurgency i mean i would do the same thing with um trying to periodize different regimes of racial hierarchy in the U.S. and seeing them as responses to um, black insurgency. You know, if you were to think, I don't know, I'm sure that if I thought more, I could do better and others could do much better than me in thinking about, you know, like um, thinking of 19th century slavery, thinking of of then, you know, the, the, the overthrow of slavery uh, through black insurgency. So in some ways, uh, Jim Crow and the reformulation of 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 uh, racial hierarchies after Reconstruction is really a response to um, to black insurgency, and that similarly, you know, reformulation another the 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 um, the black insurgency culminating in the 1960s then then enforces white supremacist power to reorganize again. Anyway, you can see what I'm what I'm getting at here. It's a, it's a more general uh, principle that power is never really creative. Cap, cap, power is always reactive. The the really creative moment comes in insurgency, comes in um, the creativity of struggles for freedom, something like that. So anyway, that then neoliberalism is just one instance within that that uh, that um, larger methodological claim. But again, one that, I mean, makes, I don't know, but for, for me it, it, at the moment, maybe I, I have trouble seeing outside it now, it seems uh, completely um, logical that the construction of neoliberalism in the U.S. in the 1970s, Reagan or Reagan-Thatcher, etc., is a reaction trying to recuperate power after the um, revolutionary struggles of the previous decades. And one more point before we move on to part four, and that is this, you make this very interesting. And of course it's essential to the, the whole sort of argument throughout the book. And that is that financialization within neoliberalism, you, you sort of go beyond the sort of gambling or dispossession critiques of financialization. And you focus on this transfer of wealth, much like in the social sphere, as I understand it, at least you're sort of looking to the generation of wealth and how this abstraction and extraction play a role in this process. Um, that, you know, that these forms of extraction and abstraction allow us 
or allow activists to think about this, I think, in a different way, that uh-huh. that financialization is sort of transferring this wealth, but then also creating, I guess you would say, new subjectivities that would be then capable of maybe better reappropriating that wealth? Well, yeah. I mean, I, you're right. I mean, in some ways... Um Let's see. In part, we're 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 reading the the functioning of finance in line with various of you know what's now called extractive industries, like thinking about how you know oil or or metals are extracted from the earth, and so that um, capital in some ways accumulates and uh, and appropriates you know things wealth that it finds already there. You know, there pretends that it's free for the taking. In the same way, finance. This is what we're trying to do is Finance is complicated, of course, but at least one aspect of finance, you know, and maybe even the major aspect, I guess, in our view, is that um, finance manages to extract wealth that was produced socially, um, and that then and 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 so what's the advantage of thinking about it that way? One is that that it recognizes the ways that we are already wealthy or producing social wealth that then is of course getting expropriated but that but recognizing that first um the powerful nature you know of the multitude is super useful here's just one example it's not a great example but i think it's it's at least easy to hold on to and then maybe one should critique it you know if you think about finance in the in the metropolis you know in the city um or think about gentrification. Yeah, see, it's, it's not a great example, like I said, but it's a story, it's an initial one. Gentrification, one often talks about it being, you know, just um, inflating values and, and um, even fictional values, etc. But I think that gentrification also should be thought of in terms of a kind of social production of wealth in the city, like even in a neighborhood, that then real estate investors, other forms of capital are able to expropriate. Yeah, so when you think about the rising rents in a neighborhood or the rising property values in a neighborhood, it's often af- after as a result of a kind of um, social collective community process of creating a new dynamic in the neighborhood, you know, like making it culturally interesting and vibrant and um, the kind of place that one wants to live Etc. And then the property values go up. And so the idea is that there was actually this production of social wealth in the creating of, of, of new social relationships, of, of cultural forms, etc., that then capital manages, and this is through the financial mechanisms, to expropriate. Right. Um, so it's, it's a little bit like being able to claim the oil that was underneath the uh, under, underground or, or claim those that, um, you know, lithium or something, you know, and extract it, it's kind of extracting from the fabric of the city, a, um, a kind of wealth that it's really producing. Um, and, and then is and then is taken away, you know, in the form of, uh, property values and, and other financial mechanisms too. I think one of the reasons we've been so antagonistic toward, private capital, I mean, for obvious reasons, but then also government in the, in our local city here is because one of the things we heard when we first opened our community cultural organizing center 
was, I mean, we had people from the city who were like, man, you guys are going to really make Midtown a nice area for people to move into. And we were like, holy Christ, this is not, this is the last fucking thing we want to do. You know, I mean, obviously they didn't, I don't think they understood what we were going to do with the space. They just saw politics, art, roots, culture. They were like, oh, they're going to have music events and poetry, which we do. They also just, you know, they didn't, I don't think, realize what our political project was at the time. But yeah, it's been, that that resonates on a, on a deep level, the way that you uh, described it, at least. I mean, we're, but that, but that, but that creating that kind of, um, that kind of space and that kind of dynamic in a neighborhood is, I mean, what, I guess what, one thing that, you know, that my example a few minutes ago required is to recognize that really as the production of wealth, you know, the creation of that. Um, of that kind of cultural dynamic within a neighborhood and in the city, you know, making it the kind of desirable place to be is really the production of wealth. So that then um, the fact that it gets captured, I mean, that's the kind of theft or expropriation that goes on is that that wealth gets captured by, by others. Right. And well, we're, we're doing our best to make sure that doesn't happen, but um, (laughs) (laughs) you know, um, Let's go, let's move into section four. Um, Let's start with this concept of power coming second. So power, you write that power is sort of this relational thing, power as relational, uh, how posing power relationships in subjective terms exposes the asymmetry of the forces involved, which makes a lot of sense to me. Um, you, You know, it's sort of how I have this sketched out is as social producers become machinic, They become more social in the existing structures of capitalism. Their products become more, uh, their products become common, uh, which comes first before power. And then because the social labor has increased sort of cognitive capacities, the production and reproduction of forms of life allow for more autonomy. And then you write this sort of line from like resistance to organization from organization to institutions. Can you talk about this concept of power coming second? Well, I mean, this is where we're, we're trying to get what I was um, working with about 15 minutes ago. Like we just said that um, it's not like, like when there, there's, there's a tendency or the tradition of thinking of power as a thing, you know, like we have power or he holds power or something like that. Whereas um, power is always a relationship. Like that's the first thing. And that, you know, that's, that's probably how I should have responded an hour ago when you said, what do Machiavelli and Foucault teach us? Because both of them do insist on that. You know, that we, you understand power not as a thing, but as a relation. And so it, it, understanding power as a relation is then, you know, first of all, that it's two-sided. And then the next step is that it's really from below that the terms are dictated, like counterintuitively, because normally one would think that the that the one on top in a power relationship would be able to dictate the terms. Um, but our claim, you know, like I was saying a few minutes ago, that 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 resistance is prior to power, is that the forces of revolt and insurrection are really the ones that dictate the possibilities for the development of, 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 the, of the power structure. You know, in some ways we're doing a kind of somewhat compensatory um, thing that just because uh, that, that dynamic, this dynamic between power and, 
and revolt um, is so often thought in the other side. You know that power, or that that that, like I keep saying, you know that that revolt is just a a kind of secondary uh, reaction to power. Um, we're trying to emphasize the other side of it. You know that, like you said, that power comes second, um, and that and that revolt or insurrection comes first. You know, and partly what we mean by comes first is not just that it chronologically comes first, although sometimes you know that's. It's really that it's the moment of creativity. Like that's where the new is really developed. Um, and that, and that the power really manages to. Um, you know, not only respond to, but sometimes to, um, how you could say, like recuperate those, the, the innovations that happen on the, on the, on the terrain of, um, of insurrection and, and liberation. Is this tied to this concept of like the way that you sketch it out or as I understand it is like the step one is indignation. Step two would be developing counter powers. And then step three would be the new subjectivities. Is that, would that be sort of wrapped up in the first step, like that indignation step? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, yes. Right. Um, if that doesn't make any sense, please tell me. I'll, I mean, it does. I was just thinking that there's a number of different, different ways I would pose the, um, but that's, uh, you know, the, the series of these, um, these three, because sometimes I, at the moment, you know, at the moment, you know, meaning 2020, I'm much more inclined to think about the formation of counter power as coming third of those. Um, yeah, but it, so indignation, you know, simply, um, you know, recognizing the injustices. I mean, that's, that just seems like a sort of base condition. Um, the construction of new subjectivities, uh, I, I was, I'm going to, at the moment I would put that, you know, second in this sequence, you know, the c construction of autonomous subjectivities, like a different subjectivity than the one that you're assigned by, um, by the dominant social formation. The construction of counterpowers actually seems like, um, yeah, something that I'm quite interested in now, or even the notion of dual power. Right. Um, you know, when, it, 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 as we were talking at the beginning, you know, like it's, it's not like Tony and I want, um, maybe I'm posing this even as a straw figure, you know, like we're not, we're not the type to say we don't want to take power or we want to have nothing to do with power or something like that. Um, thinking about counter powers, you know, is really about constructing, um, you know, institutions, institutions, meaning like stable forms, you know, like even, you know, the social cultural centers is, is that, that, um, that can not only challenge the, the dominant powers, but also construct an alternative. Right. That's what, um, that's what we want with that. You know, this, this notion of dual power, it also, is, it, you know, has a deep Kami tradition, but doesn't have to be set there. Um, so Lenin, when, you know, the, 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 the process of the Soviet revolution between February and October, you know, in February of 1917, there was the overthrow of the Tsarist government. And there was a period from February to October of, um, of uh, mixed forces, 
you know, in some ways, uh, before the Soviet revolution. In that period, Lenin talked about constructing a dual power. In other words, to construct, in addition to the, to the, to the ruling state, a kind of second power, um, alternative and different, you know, not, not, not the same. Uh, Tony and I have often been talking about this recently as, you know, something, a way about thinking about things today. Um, you know, that w- we, that one could think about political action today in terms of constructing really existing social alternatives, you know, as a, in that sense, as a dual power. So um, it doesn't seem, you know, it doesn't seem like right on the agenda, the overthrow of the ruling, you know, uh, I don't know, overthrowing capital in 2021. I'm not imagining, I hope I'll be, you know, disabused of that, but I'm not imagining that's on the agenda, but, you know, constructing, alternatives ways of of uh, social forms and social institutions things like that as a as a dual power that um, that might be one way of thinking about this politi- of, of 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 our various political projects constructing I mean in some ways this dual power is the consolidation of counter powers I don't know, I hope that terminology is making some sense. Yeah, no, it is. Um, I, and I hope it's not too embedded in a, in a whole Soviet history, because it's not literally what I mean. I, I mean just as a way of, of naming the kind of autonomy and the construction of alternatives, you know, that are going on all, all over right now. No, 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 it makes, it makes sense. Um, one of the things that sort of hit me in uh, Chapter 14, which you might find this quite ignorant, but in Chapter 14 I was like, Okay, this is, I mean, I was, as I was rereading the book and taking notes for this particular interview, it sort of clicked that I had to go back and sort of revisit Empire. That because Empire is these like assemblages of power, and I know I wrote this to you in the email, but I, and I, I felt reluctant to write it because I'm like, maybe this isn't, maybe this is totally off. But anyway, in thinking about how you and Tony developed this concept of Empire as like assemblages of power, as like networks of different forms of power that we have to sort of do the same thing. Like anyway, it it took me until chapter 14 for that to kind of click. I don't know if that's, you don't explicitly say that in the book, but everything made a hell of a lot more sense when I went and revisited empire. Cause I'm like, okay, in order to combat this new empire, we have to come up with new institutions, new structures, new ways of being in order to fight an empire that's constantly changing and is much less, uh, the traditional forms of imperialism, the traditional forms of nation-state domination. We can't create inst- alternative institutions or forms of resistance that would mimic previous forms of resistance because the conditions are just totally different. Right. Yeah, that's definitely a, a line of thinking that, yeah, that we've been trying to figure out for quite a while. But yes, yeah, that's definitely our... our um, that's definitely our, our, our way of thinking about it. Um, Sorry I mean, that that's obvious. That you got to page 250 <laughs> and chapter 14 is the amazing part. Um, no, I'm just, I, I apologize. <laughs> I apologize because I was like, book. no, it is. Well, it is, man. And I, I told Sergio before today's interview, I mean, he was upstairs and he came and peeked in my apartment because I've been trapped in there for like five days. And I was like, look, man, this is like a fucking final exam. 
I was like, I, I mean, and this is from somebody, I have to be honest with you, Michael. I, you know, I barely graduated high school and I dropped out of college during the Occupy movement because I was 20 something years old and thought the revolution was on the uh, doorstep. So anyway, I, you know, I don't have the training, I think, to probably understand most of this. I just spend time with the uh, thesaurus and dictionaries and just trying to figure this out. In any case, I'm sorry for the digression, but that's just the reality of what it is. Um, so yeah, I know that that's probably obvious to you, but it, in other words, it really clicked for me in that chapter. Um, let's talk about, cause I know we about, we got about 30 minutes left and there's a few things I'd like to get to. One of them is, uh, impossible reformism so that this terrain is sort of lost on the left for two primary reasons. Uh, you mentioned first because reformism has been hijacked by neoliberalism second because the industrial working class is withered and then we sort of touched on some of this but also that the subjectivities created in the current social production and reproduction require a rethinking of both reform and revolution and this is borne out by history failed 20th century reformism and you sort of uh, sketch this out in three scenes the first being early 20th century failures and that's through nationalism and national identity, the cause of failure post-World War II uh, because the, they participated in imperialisms and forms of neocolonization. And then the third period, the post-war neoliberal period, a failure of revolutionary reformism. And that in order to break this cycle, we have to create these new counterpowers. But can you talk a little bit about these failures and at least how you see them? I, maybe I shouldn't call them failures, but... Um, in any case, how you see those yeah. sort of three scenes and how they can help inform what we're doing or where we go from here. You know, the one thing I, that's definitely what, I mean, we do, we, we are trying to, you know, think through the 20th century um, proposals, you know, of left, left reformism that have, um, they're withered, you know, that don't, that don't seem useful, uh, paradigms for us today. But, you know, I would, I would add to this that it's not like today. I think that we are faced, there have been times in history, but I think not today are we faced with the choice that we have to make between reform and revolution. You know, I don't think that's, and so when Tony and I are critiquing reformism here, it's not to say, you know, any reform is bad. Uh, you know, we need the revolution. Um, in fact, I think that we have to recognize, you know, the kinds of reforms that can lead to something greater and the kinds of reforms that don't. Maybe that's uh, another way of, of, of thinking about it. I mean, so, so yes, like this is where you were starting and, and, and what we were doing in that section of the book, which is to um, recognize that we can't um, reproduce and we wouldn't want to reproduce the kinds of reformist projects that, you know, had occupied um, a certain progressive imagination, you know, during, during much of the 20th century. But yeah, like I said, I don't want that to, I, I wouldn't want that to, to, to then bleed into something that, um, you know, for instance, I mean, defunding the police is a kind of reform, you know, it's not, at least in most of the ways that people are imagining it. I mean, I, one of the nice things about that slogan today actually is how, 
how many broad things come under it, um, you know, from some, um, you know, shifting some of the bu- budgets of the police department toward toward other services, towards you know, radically rethinking how um, social safety is done. But it's not. It seems to me um, like I wouldn't want to say, oh, well, those are just reforms. Like we don't want those. Right. Um, I think uh, what we were doing is is recognizing that the kinds of reformisms that had um, seemed like the only ones we could choose from are are no longer available to us. Um, I mean, another way of thinking about what I was just saying is that when we think about revolution, we have to today. I think we do have to think of it as composed of certain kinds of reformist processes. And then when we think about reform today, we have to think of it as oriented towards uh, opening towards and even, you know, nurturing larger, larger transformations. In other words, rather than thinking of, you know, reform or revolution as a choice, rather one needs to think about the kind of complementarity between certain kinds of reforms and radical transformations. That'll bring us to this concept of these sort of three paths to governance. But before we get there, because that's sort of the last question, I would like to ask you a little bit. I really appreciated your portion uh, about the multitude's weapons. And precisely because at this moment, you know, we have friends in Seattle. One of our friends up there is a uh, former army ranger. He's a, uh, he's a longtime environmental activist and he's been asked by some of the people up there to sort of help them do their patrols in the Chaz. I think it's called something else now, but, um, chop the chop. We, we were, we were, how do I put this? Um, cause I don't want to go down this path too much, but having been around a lot of violence and then also having been, and I'm not a pacifist and I don't, I don't really look at things through that scope, but for me, it was more, to see people walking around with AR-15s doesn't necessarily bother me if indeed they're tied to an organizational structure uh, that it goes beyond just sort of this like posturing. And not that that's necessarily what's happening either. I mean, you have people who are genuinely trying to protect each other. Um, but it's concerning because some of what we've heard from people, our friends on the left, is like, a lot of this talk of like, well, every people need to get armed, man. Everybody's got to get armed like this is. And I was like, well, wait a minute. Like, actually, our most potent weapon is our organizational capacity and our ability to like bring large numbers of people, hopefully, into the process. Um, that's mm-hmm. a really simple way of saying what you've said. But I mean, in any cases, that's that's sort of what you were getting to. I mean, you use the example of the commune again. And that the fact that its power was not in its artillery, but in its daily workings, that like its actual power was in its democratic governance. And that, yes, through that, right. you might have, of course, people who are armed or whatever the case may be, but that that's not really where our power comes from. Yeah, right. And the, and the, and the more contemporary example, I remember Tony and I were thinking of the time was Rojava, you know, in northern, the Kurdish northern Syria, where... Yes, they're armed. You know, they they do have to fight. You know, both against ISIS and against uh, you know the Syrian government and the Turkish government, etc. But but there too, what's really powerful is you know their 
their mode of organization and the the kinds of social structures they're experimenting with. And um, yes, yeah, so I, I mean, the way you said it seems seems great to me. You know, that it's a kind of one needs to put the um, put the question of of arms, you know, of military weapons in the context of what's, you know, subordinate them to uh, the, the question of social potential. Um, yeah, that, that seems like an excellent way of doing it. I mean, both thinking about it today and then also in evaluating things historically, you know, thinking about the history of the Black Panthers and, and, and what the arms meant for them and um, compared to their breakfast program, for instance, something like that, right? And that's something that you know the Panthers were often saying too. What was what was most scaring? You know, the FBI was not their shotguns, but their breakfast program. Um, so anyway, I mean, it's it, it it's um, I think it's not a we're not no, we're not saying anything you know particularly new with that because you know you and I just came up with several examples of it <laughs> historically, but it's it's helpful to remind people of that every once in a while you know that the it, it's uh, and the the point is not even that much about the weapons it's really about the other part you know that the right. um, that it's the um, that what can be so threatening is in fact. Um, a breakfast program, New you know, something like that, that that's what, um, and that's what, um, yeah, we should think about it that way. I mean, like you, I'm not, I have no, I have no principled, um, I have no principled anti-violence, um, program. I think it just, it, it just, one has to think about what types of force are effective and what aren't in different contexts and yeah well it's a particularly yeah. useful right now because as i mentioned in this context we have people who are like very apolitical people coming to sergio and i being like hey should we show up to this next rally everybody armed and we're like whoa 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 you know step back that and we're, we're bringing it to the we're trying to bring it to the point that you were saying so like not to focus on the arms but to get them to focus on the fact that building new institutions are actually our best weapons um Right. Yeah. Let's. My experience is that after Charlottesville is when there was a kind of uh, increased focus on arms. Yep. And I, it's understandable, but but um, but in any case, yeah, I think I think the the way you were approaching it is exactly what Tony and I were trying to get at here. And the point I would make to people who are listening is that it, this is a digression, but I want to just tell people: look, I mean, even in in the Marine Corps. You go to boot camp for 13 weeks. You don't pick up a weapon until week 11. Um, there's a tremendous amount of training and discipline and trust that is involved with uh, being a part of anything like that. So that's just something I would like to add as, as an aside. Uh, the kind right. of the kind of cohesion, the kind of discipline, and the kind of organization that's necessary. The kind of trust, really, um, that's necessary for those things to function. Um, in any case, uh, let's finish by talking about the three paths to governance, uh, exodus, antagonistic reformism, and then new institutions. So it's sort of bringing all of this together. And again, this resonates with us because if we had the capacity in the city, 
we would probably be doing all three. I mean, we try to do all three with the capacity that we have, but we would like to have programs that operate really outside of existing structures. We would also like to engage in antagonistic reformism and then also building new institutions and then for all of this to become like complementary. So in other words, we see groups like, and I'm using the U.S. context, like we see groups like Cooperation Jackson and we really like parts yeah. of what they do. And then we see groups who are conducting antagonistic reforms and we really like parts of what they do. We see groups trying to build new institutions, obviously perhaps the most difficult of the bunch, but we also like the work that they're doing. The thing we've been thinking about is sort of how to bring all of this together. It directly aligns, I think, with what you guys are saying at the end of the book. Um, so if you just sort of want to finish with like these ideas of the three paths of governance and, and building this new these new forms of power. And even, I do like also just, uh, on a side note that you mentioned just something uh, like this idea of quantitative easing for the people, this idea of you, <laughs> this idea of UBI, uh, which people really, a lot of people on the left poo pooed. And I was like, I, I thought it made a lot of sense for exactly the reasons that, that you guys mentioned. Um, but anyway, yeah. if, if you just want to talk about those three paths to governance and, and that'll sort of wrap up well, with these three paths, we're really, uh, you know, we're, we're, you know, it, uh, we're probably just being non-dogmatic, you know, that recognizing that all of these, we, we were kind of trying to catalog uh, the different strategies on the, on the radical left today. And, well, first of all, recognize that none of them on its own is, is sufficient. And that, that it seemed to us the only path is, like you were saying, finding a kind of complementary process. I mean, so, yeah, so with the first one, which, you know, we're calling Exodus, but, but also, but usually goes under the title of, of prefigurative politics, you know, the Exodus meaning, you know, like an exit from uh, the dominant society and creating an alternative on a small scale. You know, most of the Occupy um, occupations, you know, kind of function that way, creating a separate differently functioning society, you know, with its own rules, with its own ethos, et cetera, which is totally great. Although, of course, as we all know, very difficult to maintain for very long. And even with the pressures of the dominant society is, 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 is super hard, you know, to maintain as this um, on a small scale. The second one that we were calling antagonistic reformism, which is which is a um, you know entry into the um, current system and try to transform it from within. You know the the '60s slogan for this was the long march through the institutions. You know, like um, work through the electoral process or work through and and transform it from within. You know, like elect different kind of candidate and and then little by little transform it from the inside. You know, this too. What. I mean, I, I remember thinking you know, when Tony and I were talking something like, you know, the long march, the institutions always ends up getting lost. You know, like that you never that that these projects to transform from from within can often just end up finding out that the institution was bigger than them, you know, and, and, and uh, trying to change from the inside, not changing at all. The third, you know, thinking by this, uh, about taking power you know, which by which we were thinking primarily, you know, of, of these 
various Latin American experiments, you know, from the previous decade. Um, but even more in general, you know, the idea of of taking power here too. To, there's a there's a what you call it a, a negative side that often comes of of a kind of taking power and then ending up repeating what the previous um, occupiers of those offices, you know, were doing. Um, and so anyway, I don't mean to bring up all three of these, or we don't mean to bring up the, what you say, the negative outcomes of, of so many experiments in each of these three as, as, as if that should, you know, we should just sigh and, and not do anything, but rather that there's a kind of complementarity that can exist among them, you know, that, that the, um, that the kinds of prefigurative experiments can interact with uh, elements of this um, antagonistic reformism. I mean, think about, for instance, you know, uh, you were just talking about the Seattle example, you know, so that the, the, um, this autonomous zone is a kind of, um, what we're referring to as exodus, you know, constructing within it the different things. But the, there's a very strong interaction between that and at least some members of the city council um, that allow it to happen. And that, and so the, there's a kind of antagonistic reformism and exodus that are in dialogue, mutually reinforcing, um, just in that, in, that, in that one example. Um, it, taking power is another is another matter, but it seems like on the horizon, like that we, sh it, we should maintain it on the horizon. Um, and thinking of these as going together, like not a kind of taking power that would then say there's no need to experiment with these prefigurative forms, but rather opens greater space for them. Yeah, anyway, that's, that's um, like I said, it's it, like much of these arguments, Tony and her, I are trying to sort of take stock of and interpret what we see going on. Um, and that's in some ways the way we're, we're reading these three, these three streams. Well, I think you've, uh, I mean, not that it matters what I think, but I think you've nailed it. I mean, as someone on the ground and even in a small place like Northwest Indiana, I mean, there's so much stuff in the book that resonates with what we're doing on the ground. And then, as aware as we are of international movements and movements around the country um, here in the U.S., you know, it's nice to see all of this put together in one place. I mean, I know I told you this before, but, and you know, I'm not doing this to like jerk you off. I mean, the reality is I, I really, really do appreciate this book. And even though it was difficult for my dumb ass to get through this thing, um, it was, uh, yeah, it was, it was really, really rewarding. And it was also something that it, it just, it really helps us, I don't know, also think about things. I mean, more so than like, we're not looking for models, you know? I mean, all the time people come to us and they're like, right. hey, do you have a new model? Do you have this? And we're like, we like to see ourselves as like experimenting, inventing, you know, empowering people, trying out new combinations that no one necessarily has the answer and that the answer isn't going to come from above, that this is like, we're going to have to develop this collectively. And those are all the themes throughout your book. And yeah, all I can say is, we did it with nine minutes to spare. I really appreciate your time more than you know. And uh, thank you for writing this. Thank you for your work. Yeah, that's, that's um, very nice of you to say that.
Uh, and it's a pleasure talking about it. Right on. Well, thank you. And yeah, we did it. So <laughs> that makes me happy. Um, yeah, thank you very much, Michael. I won't bother you for many months for another uh, interview, but I would like to at some point, maybe you know later on in the year after the elections or something like this. Um, sure. But sure, yeah, yeah that, that, that'd, be, that'd be nice. I appreciate your time. And uh, can I ask you one question? Just this isn't recorded. This is just a general question. You mentioned, I was watching one of your lectures and you had mentioned that you're not, like you're really skeptical of this concept of like the public intellectual and I think for really, for really valid reasons, I was going to ask you if you, if you avoid doing more and more interviews and like videos and stuff like this, like, is that something that you actively avoid doing? Or is that something that you just are not as interested in doing? I, I was just, yeah, that's just for my own. I was just wondering. I, you know, you would, you, you would be right that the two would sort of flow together, but I, I actually don't think of this as public, you know, anyway, um, I don't, I don't really avoid them as much as I don't avoid them for that reason. I do. I have found in recent years, my avoiding things because I find that I just am repeating myself, you know, like I, I want to feel like I have something new or engaged with someone that would make it into something new. You know what I mean? Yeah. Um, cause otherwise I, um, yeah, I just um, I feel like I should shut up. Um, yeah, so I, there's a certain amount of um, avoiding just for that that simple reason. You know, actually, in the U.S., I feel in particular that there isn't that much, you know, danger. Like, the movements are so well-developed in their not wanting intellectuals to tell them what to do, that there's really no danger of that, which right. is nice. Right. You know, I don't feel like it would, like you said, and, and I, I think, you know, it's not like you, you know, you, your, your group is unusual in this, you know, uh, you don't want anybody telling you what to do or giving you the model or, you know, something like that. I think that's a pretty highly developed thing among all kinds of activists and left thinkers in the U.S., you know, activist thinkers, activist scholars. So anyway, um, I, uh, I do find myself annoyed by people who sort of want to be public intellectuals, but that's a, that's, that's just a private little thing. I don't know. Yeah. Well, well, there's all kinds of so-called rock star intellectuals. See, what upsets me, Michael, and this, I'll just be real with you. I, there's a ton of people out there who are like so-called rock star intellectuals who don't have like one-tenth of the fucking interesting things that you and Tony are working through, and yet I see their faces plastered. Every time I open up something, somebody's sending me something about this person making another speech or this person like making another provocative statement, which I think a lot of times is just to be provocative. Um, I, yeah, I, it's annoying. I mean, it's annoying, especially then when, you know, I read a book like this or I go through and try and find interviews with you and I'm like, well, what the fuck? I can only find like four or five interviews about this book, but I could find like 1000 interviews with Zizek or somebody saying shit <laughs> that, you know, I mean, and, and again, I actually, that book he did on violence, I thought was really useful. 
Um, there's other stuff that he does that I find very useful. There's other stuff that I'm like, and it's not just him. There's a whole bunch of people that I can pull up and I'm like, fuck, we'd be a lot better off if people were watching your stuff more than uh, that shit, in my opinion. So yeah. not well, that it matters, but anyway, <laughs> that's my take. Yeah. I wish, right. I wish you, yeah. I wish that your guys's work and what you were saying, uh, were getting out there even more is what I would say. So ah. I wouldn't worry about like shutting up because I think it's something that I, I think the movement appreciates this kind of stuff. So anyway, uh-huh. thank you for your time, Mike, and we'll, we'll stay in contact with you, but, uh, we appreciate it really. I, I, I do. Yeah. Great. Yeah. Yeah. I, I, I've enjoyed it too. All right. Thank yeah, you. Too bad that, um, you know, maybe in post virus world, if any such things arrives, I could actually come visit. Oh, well, we're going to have will, you up here. That'd be, uh, yeah. Yeah. But, but we'll see. We will see. <laughs> I know Sergio's laughing. Yeah. Maybe never, but if it does, if the day does come, we're definitely going to have you up here. Okay. All right, Michael, take care. Okay. Bye. Thank you. Hey, thank you for watching and listening. If you think this program is worth a pack of cigarettes or a cheeseburger, you could become a Patreon for as little as $3 a month. The link is available at our website, parkmedia.org. That's P-A-R-C media.org. Make sure to subscribe to our YouTube channel below. Also, you could find us on Instagram at Park Media, Facebook at Politics, Art, Roots, Culture, and you could find me on Twitter at Vince Emanuele.